The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. It is a joy to be back with you now for the third time in revival services. I love this church. I'm always excited when I have the opportunity to come. When I learned that Brother Mike had announced his retirement, I called him and I said, Now, Brother Mike, I know sometimes churches don't want to have revival when their uh, pastor has retired. And if, if the church would like to release me from that commitment, I'll be certainly understand, and that'll be fine, and I'll have plenty of time. Somebody else will want me. And uh, he said, no, Brother Bob, we want you to come, and the church wants you to come, and I'm so glad that he did. And I am honored to be here with you, and even though Mike has retired, I'm glad his wife hadn't retired. She's still playing the piano. Well, it's good to see you. I think I see Benny and Shirley Jackson back there. Brother Benny and Shirley. Brother Benny's an evangelist, and he was a member at Kirby Woods for the whole 20 years that I was there, and they've moved here close now. But Brother Benny and Shirley, it's so good to see you. And I saw Janet somewhere. Where are you, Janet? Uh, Janet and her husband are back there visiting here, and they're members at Kirby Woods, and it's good to see you here tonight, today. Well, take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. There are some of you that are in this service that were in the early service, and I don't know if you thought I'd preach a different sermon or not, but uh, I'm not this time. Sometimes I do, but I feel like I want to share this message again, but that I did with the early service. As you're turning there, let me say to you, a week of revival is, uh, it goes by so fast. I do this all the time. This is how I make a living. This is what God's called me to do. I was a pastor for 33 years and loved it. And now I'm doing this and I love this. And I've enjoyed the music today, Paul. It's been so good. If you were to go with me week after week, church after church, all across America and listen to some of the music that I have to listen to, you would be a serial killer. (laughs) I killed three people this week for no reason at all. I just thought about the music I'd been listening to. But I have certainly been blessed. And I tell you, this choir, I believe they're already in revival. They're excited. But anyway, thank you. But uh, there are three things I want to make a promise to you. First of all, I promise you that in these four days that I'm here with you, I promise you that I'm going to love you. Secondly, I promise you that I'm going to pray for you. And thirdly, I promise you that I'm going to preach God's word to you. That's my promise to you. And I want you to make a threefold promise, not to me, but to the Lord. I want you to promise that you're going to continue praying for revival. Now, I know you've been praying, and I know this weekend you've had an intensive prayer time. But don't stop. This is the critical time. Promise the Lord you're going to keep praying. Secondly, I want you to promise the Lord that you will do as Brother Charles exhorted you to do, invite people to come. There are people in your neighborhood who would come if you asked them to come. And then thirdly, I want you to promise the Lord that you'll be in every service in which you can possibly be present. I want you to come. 
We're going to have a good time. I promise you we will. So I want you to come. I hope you'll be faithful. Every time I say that, somebody invariably will say, now, Brother Bob, I can't be there in body, but I'll be there in spirit. Now, if you can't come, don't send you spook, all right? <laughs> uh, most churches are handed enough, so don't do that. But, but I want to encourage you to come and be in the revival, and we'll have a good time. All right, Luke 7, verse 11. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now, I live in northwest Alabama. And in northwest Alabama, much people means lots of folks. All right? Much people. Now, when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And here's that phrase again, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, that's the open casket, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother. In the New Testament, we're told that of three specific instances in which Jesus raised somebody from the dead. In John chapter 11, Jesus raised a man from the dead whose name was Lazarus. Jesus loved Lazarus. And Lazarus loved Jesus. Lazarus had lived in the city of Bethany with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, I don't know if they were widows and widower or if they'd, ne or if, if they'd never been married at all. The Bible doesn't tell us. But, but Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived there in Bethany, and it was one of Jesus' favorite places to go. I have favorite places I like to go. You have favorite places you like to go. Well, Jesus did too. He loved to go to Bethany, and he loved to go especially to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now, the reason was very simple. When he went to their house, he was loved on. You know, Jesus went to a lot of places where people didn't love him. He went to a lot of places where people hated him. But when he went to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they loved him. Secondly, when he went to their house, he was going to eat very well. Martha was a wonderful hostess. She loved to set the table. She loved to prepare food for folks who came to visit, especially Jesus. And so when Jesus went to their house, he got lots of good food. Now, when he got there, Mary, she would always sit at his feet, and Martha would be in the kitchen getting the, the food prepared for the meal. Now, I've heard some preachers preach, and they just really magnify Mary, and they kind of minimize Martha as though what she was doing was not important. But I want to tell you, I like Martha's. I really do. If I come to your house, I don't want you sitting at my feet. I want you in the kitchen getting something ready to eat. I, I am a Martha's kind of guy. Well, when Lazarus died, Jesus was not in Bethany. He was away, and... By the time he got there, Lazarus had already been dead and buried for four days. 
And yet the Bible tells us in John 11 that Jesus instructed them to roll the stone away and he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came back from the dead. The second time we're told that Jesus raised someone from the dead, uh, all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us about it. It was a little 12-year-old girl whose father's name was Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, rulers of the synagogue, these were the guys who were the kind of the boss man in the synagogue. They, they were in charge. They determined who was going to speak. They determined what was going to be done in the service. And so they were kind of important guys. But most rulers of the synagogue didn't really care for Jesus because he had really kind of turned their apple carts upside down. But Jairus had this little 12-year-old girl who became critically ill and was at the point of death. And out of desperation, he comes to Jesus and he says, I have, I have a daughter who's dying, but if, if you'll just come and heal her, I know it'll be all right. And so Jesus was on his way to the house of Jairus to heal that little girl or to raise her. Well, she was still sick, but on the way there, people come from the house and they say, well, there's no reason to bother him anymore. The little girl is dead. Maybe if he had gotten there before she died, he could have done something, but she's died. Well, Jesus just didn't pay any attention to that. He went right on to the house of Jairus. And when he got there, the Bible says here were all these professional mourners and they were out front just weeping and wailing and carrying on. And Jesus said, what are you making all this noise for? Don't you know there's somebody dead here? And by the way, she's not dead to stay dead. And those same ones that were weeping and wailing and sobbing, the Bible says, they laughed him to scorn. Uh, so much for the sympathy of this world. And so the Bible said Jesus put them all out. He goes back into the bedchamber where the little girl is laying dead and he raises her from the dead. The third person that Jesus raised from the dead is the one that I just read to you about from Luke chapter 7. We know less about him than we do the other two. Lazarus, we knew his name. This little 12-year-old girl, we knew the name of her father. But we don't know any names here. We don't know the name of this young man that's dead. We don't know the name of his mother. We don't know the name of his father. There's so much unknown, but there's so much to see here in this passage of Scripture that I want to share with you today. The Bible tells us that Jesus was on his way into the city of Nain. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, you may be passed by it from a distance. I've never been in the city, but you drive down a certain highway and they'll say, over there it is. There's not much to it, to be honest with you. And I don't know if it was like that in the day of Jesus or not, not much to it today. But Jesus is on his way into the city, and the Bible says many of his disciples are with him, and then it adds that phrase, much people. There were lots of them. Here's a great throng of people going into the city, and Jesus is the very center of attention. He always is. He never plays second fiddle in anybody's orchestra. Jesus is always the first string. And so Jesus is the center of attention, and all of these people are there because of him. 
Maybe he had healed some of them. Maybe he had done some other miracle on their behalf. But all of these people were there because their lives had been influenced by Jesus. And I can just see them. Man, they're laughing and talking and high-fiving and praising and just having a good time. Lots of noise on their way in. It is a procession of life. Nobody's sad. Nobody's downtrodden. Everybody's up. Everybody's excited. And so here's this great procession of life going into the city. At the same time, there is a procession of death coming out of the city. It's large too. The Bible says much people. There's a young man. I don't know how old, but Jesus called him a young man. I would assume 17 to perhaps 20 years of age. But here's a young man and he's dead. I don't know why he's dead. I don't know if he had a sickness. I don't know if he had an accident. The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible just gives us the fact he was dead. He's a dead man. And he's being carried in an open casket by the pallbearers on their way to the cemetery to have his body buried away. His mother is there following that casket. And then there's a great throng of people, a large funeral procession, making their way out to the cemetery. Probably, the Bible says that this woman was a widow, so she's already made this journey once before. Her husband already had been buried out there in the graveyard, and probably they're going to bury her son, her only son, the Bible said, the only other man in her life. She may have had daughters, but she didn't have any other sons. And now they're carrying him out, probably going to bury him right beside his dad. And so these two processions collide right there in the city gate. You have a large procession of life going in and a large procession of death coming out. And so what is Jesus going to do? I, I told the early service that those of us who were born and bred here in the deep south, we, we grew up with certain customs and traditions, and some of them were not so good, but some of them are good. One of the customs that we have grown up with here in the south is if we're driving our car and we see a funeral procession coming our way, it is our custom to pull over to the side of the road and out of respect for that family, let the funeral procession pass before we continue driving. That's what we do. That's the way we were raised. And it doesn't make any difference if we know those people or not. It doesn't matter the color of their skin. All that we know is here comes the funeral procession. And out of respect for them, we pull to the side and allow them to pass. Now, is that what Jesus is going to do? Here's a great throng of people going into the city, and here comes a funeral procession out of the city. Is he going to turn to his group and say, now step aside, give way, yield, be quiet, and let the funeral procession pass by? Now, that's what I would have done. That's what you probably would have done, but that's not what he does. Jesus doesn't yield. He doesn't give way. As a matter of fact, he interrupts the funeral procession. He doesn't just continue to go on by. He actually interrupts the funeral. He walks right over to that open casket where that young man's body is in full display and he puts his hands on the casket and those who were carrying the casket stood still. That's what the Bible says. And then Jesus does three 
First thing Jesus did is he removed the tears. He says to this grieving mother, this widow, he says to her, stop crying. Now he did it, the Bible said, he had compassion on her. But he said, stop crying. And that's not a, in the New Testament language, that wasn't a request, it was a command. Jesus gave her the instruction, stop crying. Now you think about that for a minute. Here was a woman, I don't know how old she was, maybe in her 50s, maybe older. But here was a woman whose husband had died. And now her only son is dead. And she's crying. That's not uncommon. That's, that's very common. Emotion is not a bad thing. God made emotion. God gave you tear ducts and all you can do with them is cry. You can't breathe through them. You can't eat with them. You can't drive a car with them. All they're good for is crying. And so emotions are not bad. And so here was a woman who was emotionally upset. She's weeping. She's sobbing. She's crying. I can imagine that her sides are aching because she's been crying so much. And Jesus said to her, stop crying. Now, if anybody else did that, it would be cruel. Brother Mike was your pastor here for 35 years. Can you imagine him at a funeral service right here behind this pulpit and, and a casket of a 17, 18-year-old boy here in front of the pulpit and sitting right there would be a, his mother of this, little, of this young man and her sobbing and weeping. Can you imagine Brother Mike having, ever having said to her, Stop crying! Well, he wouldn't have been here 35 years if he had done that. You see, for anybody else to do that, it would be heartless, it's cruel, it's mean, it's insensitive. But when Jesus did it, it was okay. And the reason he could tell her to stop crying is because he's going to fix the problem she's crying about. You know, sometimes Jesus can just say things nobody else can say. Uh, on one occasion, Jesus said, uh, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you to do. I suppose I were to say to Dr. Carter, and I've known him since I was a teenager, suppose I were to say to him, uh, Brother Charles, you can be my friend if you do everything I tell you to do. Well, he wouldn't stand for that. He'd say, well, Pippin, your friendship doesn't mean that much to me. I wouldn't have a right to make a demand like that on him. But when Jesus said it, it's okay. You're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you to do. It just sounds right. And so Jesus says to this woman, stop crying. Because he's going to fix the problem. I was a pastor for 33 years. I've been preaching as of this past Easter Sunday. I've been preaching 50 years. I'm 66 years old. Now, I know I look older than that, but if you spend as many nights with Baptist people as I do, you'd look older. <laughs> Baptists will kill you. I was at Kirby Woods 20 years. I told them, when you pass by and see me in the box, I want you to know you've had a hand in that. <laughs> but for 50 years, I've been preaching. 33 of those years, I was a pastor. And there were many times in my pastoral life that I went into situations that I wished I could fix. 
I've gone into hospital rooms where teenagers' bodies so mangled from terrible automobile accidents. And the doctors already said there's, there's no hope. No hope. And I've actually seen dads and moms pass out in the hospital room floor when the doctor said there's no hope. And I thought, oh God, I wish I could. I wish I could fix it. Two weeks ago, I was in a revival at the First Baptist Church of Deweyville, Texas. And just before I got there, they had a little three-year-old boy having his third birthday. And all the people were coming, grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles, cousins, friends. And, and as, as, as the mom and dad were welcoming people into the house for the little boy's third birthday, he slipped out into the back and went into the pool and drowned. And... His grandmother told who was the church hostess, she said, Brother Bob, I'm so angry with God. I said, well, I can understand that, and he does too. But I wish I could have fixed that. The heartache that that family feels, the discouragement and the disappointment, I wish I could fix it, but I can't fix it. There's just things I can't fix. But Jesus can fix it. And so Jesus says to this woman, stop crying, and he's going to remove the reason for which she's crying. You know, life is a veil of tears. The minute you're born, you begin life in tears. Some doctor or some nurse is going to pop you on the hind side, and your first breath is accompanied with tears. And the older you get, the more the tears flow. There are tears because of disappointment. Sometimes things don't work out. Maybe you invested a lot of money in something and you had great dreams and visions and it all fell to nothing and you lost everything you had and you wept those tears of disappointment. Sometimes a young couple will get married and they're so much in love and, and, and they say, Brother Bob, can two people live as cheaply as one? I say, well, sure. If one will go hungry and the other will go naked, you can do it. <laughs> but young couples, oh, they're so excited and so much in love and so kind of goofy with it. But sometimes years pass and that love turns into hatred and they head to the divorce court. And they weep tears of disappointment because nobody gets married in order to get divorced. And, and no one feels the heartache more in divorce than the young couple or the old couple that goes through it. So there are tears of disappointment. There are tears of disease. You may have a mother or a dad whom you love and who raised you. And, and now they have Alzheimer's and you go see them and they don't even know who you are. And you cry your way out of the nursing home all the way to the car and then cry yourself all the way home and then cry yourself to sleep. Maybe you have a loved one who has cancer. Maybe you have cancer. Maybe the doctor says you have leukemia and you try to put up a, a, a bold front and, and maybe you do pretty well. But then there are those lonely times when you're all by yourself and all other words seem to diminish and that word cancer, leukemia, they just are there and, and you weep those tears of disease and then there are tears of death. Most of us in this room have 
gone to the funeral home more times than we ever wanted to go. And if you haven't, just keep living. That's the way it is. You see, the truth is, all of us have to deal with death. The death of loved ones and then eventually our own death. And the tears that accompany that. I've never laughed when anybody died. I've wept. Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus did not laugh. He wept. Tears. There's an interesting verse in Psalm 56 verse 8. I've tried to prepare a sermon on it through the years, but I've never been able to because I can't get my hands around it. I've tried. But in Psalm 56 8, the Bible tells us about God's tear bottle. God has a bottle of tears. And it's not tears that he has shed. It's tears that we have shed. God somehow, miraculously, mysteriously, our tears, those of us who belong to God, our tears do not fall to the earth and evaporate into the air. Our tears are collected by God and stored in his tear bottle. And I just can't get a hand on all that means. But I know that it does mean at least this. It at least means that our tears do not go unnoticed by the Lord. An old, old song. I hadn't heard it in 40 years. An old song says, does Jesus care? When I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me, when my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks, is it aught to him? Does he care? And then the chorus says, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are dreary, the long nights weary, I know my Savior cares. Warren Wiersbe says, every preacher should have a vivid imagination. He wrote a book about the preacher's imagination. And and in my imagination... I can see on that day when all of God's people get together, maybe the first day, maybe the first day, all the Old Testament believers and the New Testament saints and all of us who become members of the family of God since the days of the New Testament, when that day comes, when we're all together for the first time, in my imagination, I can see God holding up that big tear bottle and saying, children of mine, here are the tears you wept while you walk the earth. And then I can just see God take that bottle and throw it as far as God can throw something, which surely must be a distance. And as that bottle goes sailing through the air, I can see God say, by my tears. You see, the Bible says there'll be no tears in heaven, no more tears. God, Jesus removed the tears. The second thing Jesus did at this uh, boy's uh, funeral day Not only did he remove remove the tears, he he raised the boy. Now look at it, what it says right there in verse uh, 15, verse 14. And he came and touched the bier, the open casket, and they that bear it stood still. And Jesus said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. Now notice, Jesus said, I say unto you. He didn't have to get anybody's permission He didn't have to call the White House and get a proclamation. He didn't have to go before the Supreme Court and get a writ of approval. Jesus said, I say unto thee, he's Lord. 
He's Lord over demons. He's Lord over disease. He's Lord over death. He is Lord. He's Lord. You don't have to make him Lord. He's Lord. He's in charge. He's owner, ruler, master, boss. He's in charge. And he said, I say unto thee, arise. And look what it says. And he that was dead, was dead. We don't use those two words together. That's not part of our language. We say he is dead. If he was dead, he's still dead, you know. He who was dead, now look at it, sat up and began to speak. Now that'll ruin a good funeral. I don't care how many flowers are there. I don't care how many pallbearers are there. I don't care how many funeral directors are there. I don't care what songs may have been sung. I'm telling you, if you go to a funeral service and the corpse sits up and begins talking, the funeral is over. Just ruined it. Jesus raised the boy. And of course, that's a promise to us of a future Resurrection. Paul said the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. There's coming a day of resurrection. Every time I go to the graveyard, I can't help but think, man, there's going to be a great shaking out here one day. Death cannot keep us. The grave cannot hold us. A resurrection day is coming. Jesus removed the tears. He raised the boy. And the last thing he did, he reunited the family. Now look at the end of verse 15. And he delivered him to his mother. Now I guarantee you that stopped her crying. I don't know anything about this woman. She might have been an Episcopalian. I don't know how old Episcopalians are. She might have been an Episcopalian. She might have been a Dutch reform. I mean, she might have been quiet and solemn in her worship. But I'm telling you on this day, she became a Baptocostal. She began to shout, hallelujah, praise God, glory. My boy is back. My boy is back. My boy is back. Woo, hallelujah, amen. I'm telling you, she had a spell. Because Jesus reunited the family. Aren't you looking forward to that? Paul said the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. You know, people say, Brother Bob, do you think we'll know one another in heaven? Well, my soul, we know one another down here. I think you'll have as much sense up there as you got down here. <laughs> I'd hate to think you'd go home today with the wrong woman because you forgot who you came with. <laughs> the Bible says we shall know as we are known, which literally means we shall know without introduction. Nobody's going to have to go around heaven, Bob Pittman, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, Bob Pittman. How are you, John? Fine, Nobody's going to have to do that. I've never seen John the Baptist, but when I see him in heaven, I'll know who he is. We'll know as we're known. What a day of reunion. When my mother was dying several years ago in the hospital, my wife and I were in the room in that intensive care room, and a little nurse from India, Indian nurse, was there. And my mother was hooked up to all these machines, and oh, I hate those machines. 
And I was watching the heart monitor that was registering your heartbeat, and it went blip, 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 and it flatlined. And that little Indian nurse said, Dr. Pittman, it's over. And I turned to her and I said, ma'am, I want to just tell you, I will never forget the way you have cared for my mother in these recent days. I'm sure you've had other patients, but it appeared to me like you were devoting so much attention to my mother. I'll never forget it. You cared for her. You ministered to her. And I could not have asked for anyone to have done better. I'll never forget you, and I never have. But I said, ma'am, I have to tell you, it's not over. Because God's people have a great day coming when the family shall be reunited again. So Jesus removed the tears. He raised the boy. He reunited the family. And the best news of all is this. When I began reading to you in verse 11, there were two processions. There was a procession of life going into the city and a procession of death coming out of the city. But when the dust settled, there was only one procession left. The procession of death had been swallowed up by the procession of life. And if you're a child of God this morning, you're in that procession of life and you're headed to heaven and you ought to look like it. Man, I get so discouraged when I find Christians that are fussing and griping and complaining and whining and poor mouth. We've got a better life than that. We belong to Jesus. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We're in the procession of life on the way to heaven and we ought to look like it and live like it. But if you're not a Christian, you're still in that procession of death. And one day, the Bible says, it will eventually lead you into what the Bible calls the second death, which is the lake of fire, hell, eternal hell. But the good news is you don't have to go. Brother Bob, has anybody ever told you to go to hell? Yeah, but I'm not going. I've made arrangements to miss. You see, if you're in that procession of death, Jesus Christ will bring you out of that today. He can break the power of that thing and set you free. And you become a part of the procession of life. Maybe you're here today and you need a church home. Not just a place to visit. Some of you may have been visiting for months. How long do you want to park in visitor's parking? Why not come and be a part of the family and be a part of the responsibility? It's a great church. If I lived here, I'd be a member here. That's a promise. I would. Maybe you're here this morning and you've become discouraged and you just need to come to this altar. And if you come, I've noticed if you come, somebody will come pray with you. Maybe you just need somebody to pray with you. Or maybe if you're here this morning, you've never been saved. Never been saved. Why don't you come? It's not hard to get saved. Jesus did all the work. All you have to do is repent of sin and trust Him and He'll save you. 
Why don't you come today and take one of these ministers that will be standing here by the hand and say, listen, today I want to be saved. Why don't you do that? Let's stand together. Father, we've come now to this time and I've done my very best to open up the truth of this passage and I pray that those who are here, that it's been an encouragement to them and maybe to those who are not saved, a word of conviction to them. Lord, don't let anybody leave here today without Christ. Don't let anybody leave lost. They may have come that way, but don't let them leave that way. Lord, speak to folks today. Some who need to make a fresh start. Some who need a word of encouragement. Some who need a church home. Some who need to be saved. Lord, speak to folks today. And we'll give you the praise for anything and everything you do. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing our hymn, would you come right now, will you? Just step out and come. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.